Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast. Our guest this episode is Doug Tenaple, talking about his fabulous new project, Armacrog. Hello everyone, this is Ben Mitchell, here with me is Steve Henderson, and yes, as indicated, in the intro on this episode of the podcast is Mr. Doug Tenaple, creator of Earthworm Jim and later on The Neverhood, which were two kind of, uh, probably quite groundbreaking video games in one sense. I think Earthworm Jim did things with sprite animation that no other 16-bit platformer had ever done, really, mm. you know? Disney maybe had had some slightly more advanced animation in their sort of tie-in video games. I remember like the the sort of tie-in games for like The Lion King and Aladdin were quite uh, fluid. And I think actually some people actually worked on that who then went on to work on Earthworm Jim. Uh, possibly Doug Tenaple himself. I wouldn't know about the Aladdin one because I could never get out of the Cave of Wonders. Oh yeah, well that was that was his plan. So. <laughs> That's the great thing about the video games is it's like a kind of pick your own adventure element of like, and this is what would happen if Jafar won. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Aladdin burned to death, his flesh <laughs> seared off by molten lava while he's trying to escape on the magic carpet. What a waste. What a waste. You could see the exit and then the f***ing boulder comes down and crushes him. Unbelievable. Yes, looking at he he did indeed work on, uh, well, he worked on the Jungle Book adaptation. Ah. Uh, video game, which I do remember also had very good animation in it. Yeah, so I guess Disney had kind of um, set something in motion, but in terms of uh, like an original idea whose sort of uh, first outing was a video game, mm. I think Earthworm Jim was kind of a, a trendsetter in that regard. I think LucasArts had done some some really brilliantly animated video games in the point-and-click arena, like Day of the Tentacle, uh sam and max stuff like that but for platformers i think like earthworm jim was really kind of unsurpassed for a long time and i kind of i had this real sense that wow what a great new era of video games we're entering into and then like two years later it was all polygonal and more immersive cg environments and uh platformers kind of fell by the wayside but they're kind of having a bit of a a renaissance i suppose at the moment there's a big sort of nostalgia factor in that you know and now you get these sort of 2d side scrollers matched with the current video game technology and they're really quite like amazing you know even like a mario brothers game now is so sort of visually rich mm-hmm. was i playing recently a oh, rayman have you seen have you played any of the new rayman games oh they're absolutely bonkers aren't they yeah. There's loads to them and even quite sort of like limited asset-based animation yeah. but so complex and so well put together and so kind of hyper detailed and yeah. you know the environments are, are just like jaw dropping and i do remember like thinking when this kind of stuff started happening oh what a great thing if maybe they kind of like dusted off earthworm jim and gave it like this hd port uh and they did that and it stunk <laughs> and here's why is that doug tenaple isn't involved in earthworm jim anymore and so all the ports that have happened he hasn't had any kind of say in and whenever they've re-released that game on a on a newer console there's just something missing hmm. it's very hard to pinpoint exactly why the closest version i found that feels right is was for the dsi you can download it um, for the dsi and it's um you know it's still a bit off but it's like a, a miles ahead of say other ports for like the game boy advance and i think this really kind of highlights the absolute animation geek in me is that there'll be a moment in the game and i'll be like oh no the frame rate's off yeah 
<laughs> you know? Yeah, like that's the kind of thing that will, and I'm sure that that has the same effect on other people on more of a perhaps subconscious level. Yes, but no, I I really felt the Deathworm Jim was a work of art. Uh, I know that the Neverhood had a huge uh, cult following. Uh, I think actually the first game was really quite popular, and that was a point and click thing that used stop motion. I think for the first time to such an extent. Remember, as a kid. When you first came across games like Earthworm Jim, and, and obviously you weren't into animation, you weren't looking at the frame rate and things like that, but it was like for the first time, you, when you press jump, something actually jumped. It didn't just float in the air or like, you know, gradually sort of... So when you go back to your old games now and, and, and try and play uh, the early Marios or, you know, stuff like, you know, the, the, the Alex the Kid or whatever, animation wasn't really considered much or, or or maybe it was severely limited oh yeah but and as soon as um you know earthworm jim came along it felt like a jump when you pressed the jump button and 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 i think animation in computer games has really had to progress from that and you know otherwise you can't be immersed in these worlds mm-hmm. it's you know it's such an important element to the to the whole gaming experience i mean if you if you pressed you know a button expecting a weight and a gravity to to sort of happen to these characters and it didn't happen i'd be severely disappointed you know mm. no it would kill it absolutely yeah yeah i remember and certainly especially if it were kind of like a cartoon tie-in and what you wanted essentially was like an interactive version of the cartoon that you loved and when they botched those that was like extra disappointing mm-hmm. there was like an r real monsters game that was like unplayably bad. Uh, the Red and Stimpy games over the years were all pretty rubbish. Yeah, they had some fun visuals, but like, oh, the Simpsons games. Ugh. Well, the new ones. What would you? Any of? Them. I mean, the newer one wasn't so bad. The just arcade cause... game was brilliant. Do you remember the arcade game? Okay, I'll, I'll give you that one. <laughs> um, Which made no sense and would never have happened. In an, it was basically the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles arcade game. Yeah. <laughs> and Smithers escaping in a hot air balloon, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, Smithers is the bad guy and like, yeah, and it's all like all the sort of like villains are like people who had like one scene in an episode in season one. Yeah. Like, yeah. Okay, that was a good game because it was so, it was basically just like had the Simpsons kind of pasted over what could have been any game, really? Like yeah. Double Dragon or, like you say, Ninja Turtles. And occasionally, Akarimba! <laughs> but any kind of console Simpsons game, any one that was made for the NES was a living nightmare, or Game Boy. There was one kind of okay one for the Super Nintendo, where it's all a dream, and so it's really surreal. So it has all these Simpsons characters, but in these sort of really bizarre locations. And they just kind of had fun with that as a concept. Mm. Like, you have to, like, navigate your way through this dream before Bart wakes up, right? That wasn't Bart versus the Juggernauts, was it? No, that was one I had. I hated that one. I guess the idea was, like, okay, well, how do we do a Simpsons game? What do we? What kind of action-adventure can we project on to a sitcom that sort of celebrates the banal and there really isn't a way to do that unless it's something that's so ridiculous like that beat 'em up arcade game. Uh, or the newer one, which I tried to play the console version and I found was pretty insufferable. But I have a version of it that's just a 2D side-scroller. It's for the DS. That was okay, but it's just a bit repetitive. And that also kind of, I think, used a similar sort of device where it's not meant to be really happening. So they could do more sort of surreal things with it. What do you think of Simpsons Hit and Run? 
that at the end it ended up being a Halloween episode, so you know all the stuff that happened didn't. That was their get out at the end. Oh, okay. It was like a, it, it was like Grand Theft, Theft Auto, but for the Simpsons, which was great to be able to walk around Springfield, you know, all that kind of stuff. I had again. I had a version of that for like the Game Boy, so I don't think I had I ever played the proper version, mm. and that was fairly. It was just like again a car game with the Simpsons just kind of pasted over it. I've got um. Uh, well, I've not played it for for an absolute age but simpsons tapped out which is the latest thing that's on on the, the iphones and stuff and it's it, it basically you you, you homer has blown up springfield and you have to rebuild springfield so it's a bit i suppose a bit sim city that kind of that kind of things and every now and then they'll they'll add a new add-on so halloween you have to splat zombies with by pressing you know it's just for people yeah. to just press their phone did you see the uh the south park on that uh from like two years ago or a year year ago or something. It was a pretty good <laughs> assessment and condemnation of uh, that type of quote unquote game. Yeah. Did uh, did did Doug have anything to do with the Earthworm Jim TV series tie-in? Uh, I hadn't thought he had, but apparently he did. Yeah, he was sort of. Um, I think he kind of was able to supervise it, so it didn't go completely off mm-hmm. track. I never felt that that show quite cap. There was a certain darkness to the games. Well, it wasn't dark, but it was. It was there was a kind of weird surreality to them mm. that I think inevitably because a, a you know a half hour episodic series has to kind of explain character origins and things like that. I think the lack of context in the video games made it seem a little bit more crazy and and weird and surreal. So one of the villains is a guy who's sort of half man, half monkey, but the monkey half is like growing out of the top of his head. Yeah. And so, basically, it's whoever's in charge is whoever's standing upright. So, the monkey thinks he's got a professor growing out of his head, and the professor thinks he's got a monkey growing out of his head. And when you see that character show up in the game, like, it's so weird. Uh, because they just kind of come out of nowhere, like, they're doing some, they're operating some kind of device, and it's the guy. And then, like, later on in the game, he shows up again, but it's the monkey with the guy that kind of, like, hanging off the top of his head. When that character shows up in a TV show... And my memory is very patchy, but I think that whole thing was so over-explained, it took away the kind of, like, what mm-hmm. factor of it. There's a sort of character in the game that you have to protect, and if you bugger up, then the character morphs into this, like, giant demonic hellhound and, you know, takes half your health away and sort of, like, drags you to, like, the beginning of the level. Mm-hmm. And that was an absolute pain in the ass, you know. And in the cartoon, he's just kind of like the wise Kraken sidekick, that kind of thing. I kind of felt like... The the concepts had more impact in in a video game setting, personally. Uh, and I remember it was one of those. Sh- it was a good enough show that it was something that I could actually watch with my dad. I remember that much. Like it had enough sort of good gags in it. And then um, South Park came along, and that pretty much sort of took that place. You know, mm-hmm. in terms of like a quote unquote edgy cartoon. That's that's the fascinating thing though about Earthworm Jim is I always imagine it in the same vein as. As Ren and Stimpy, or as mm. maybe Cow and Chicken, as South Park, this kind of thing, but it really wasn't. You know, he's he's got a very clean, wholesome uh, sort of. I mean, although it's surreal, it's not. It's not a, a quest for a fart, or you know, there's not uh, anal probes coming out of people's you know rectums or anything. You know, it's not. Yeah. It's not bowel obsessed. Well, there was actually the, one of my favorite levels is you're exploring someone's duodenum, <laughs> and it, just for that episode you're like a tapeworm no it was um the level's called uh jim is now a blind cave salamander right it was the name of the level and suddenly it's like you're playing this completely different game and then just at the end of the level 
this salamander unzips himself and it's Earthworm Jim in a costume. Right. But for the whole episode, you're just exploring these intestines and like there are like sheep floating around inside the intestines and there are windows that kind of like overlook this sort of like moonlit sky, <laughs> like in the, I guess, the intestinal lining. Stuff like that. Like, well, shut my mouth. But I guess that that was the kind of thing where like if you tried, I think, too hard to shove all these crazy ideas together like i think okay what's the most crazy idea i can think of right now Mm. that starts to show there was a there was a video game that came out around the same time called i think booger man and that i didn't like because that was just trying so hard to be like a gross out cartoon yeah and i think that what made earthworm jim the earthworm jim games work was um that they can just tell it was like it was probably the first idea that came to their head. What if in this level you're not Earthworm Jim at all anymore? You're a blind cave salamander, and the music in that level is Moonlight Sonata, <laughs> which I just thought was a lovely touch. And uh, and there's one episode in the first game where you're in hell, but it's it's called Heck because it's yeah. a game. But yeah, it's, yeah. It, so it was dark for like kids fair. They were it sort of floated somewhere between Looney Tunes and Ren and Stimpy, I would say. Ren and Stimpy, they'd actually go to hell, mm. like in that, you know, if they uh, if they pissed on the electric fence. <laughs> That's something that you probably wouldn't get in something like Earthworm Jim, like something that kind of. Well, there you go. Yeah, or, or rubber nipple salesman, <laughs> or any that kind of. Yeah. Uh, as soon as it is out of his hands, that's the sort of moment where. It just loses something, and it's like... I think whenever a creator has a very unique, specific vision for something, and then someone else takes over, there's just immediately an absence. It's the same gripe I would have about a show like uh, The West Wing or Twin Peaks, Mm -hmm. where as soon as the original creator's gone, it just becomes a different show. Uh, I saw online recently, they've written another Dragon Datu book, but the guy who wrote the original three is dead, so they just got some other guy to write it, and I was like, well, that doesn't count, does it? Well, it's like the James Bond novels still going on. Yeah. I mean, you know, do you, I don't know what the attitude about that is. Like, do people feel a certain way about that? Like, maybe the original... Because I think the original books surely would have had... Was it Ian Fleming was the guy? Yeah. Surely they would have had a particular voice and tonality to them. And I mean, maybe when it's something as big as James Bond... Mm-hmm. People are more forgiving. Well, but James Bond keeps replacing himself anyway. So in the films, so I suppose if the author yeah. keeps replacing himself, it's just the idea is the only constant. Well, certainly the concept of James Bond is is a lot less played for laughs nowadays. It seems like they don't seem like particularly satirical films. Whereas I think the old James Bond films, they were kind of parodies, mm. which is why I think like I remember there was an interview with Mike Myers I heard recently where he was saying how he was so surprised that anyone that Austin Powers ever did well because it was a parody of a parody. Yeah. I guess the reason why they did well is that they were very funny, or certainly people thought they were very funny at the time. Whereas, say, something like... I was watching... uh, Just to punish myself, I watched a little bit of one of those scary movie films recently. Okay. I wonder if this holds up. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) But those didn't work because they were making fun of things... Like, something like Scream at the time was already quite a nice bit of satire. Like, I think people don't remember that at the time when Scream came out, it was a really good satire on horror films. Mm. But because every other horror film for like five to ten years copied the Scream formula, it's now, I think, just regarded as like indicative of like what 90s film culture was. But no, at the time it was a, it was very tongue in cheek. Mm. So if you're going to make a parody of a film that's already quite tongue in cheek and the jokes in the parody 
are not as good as the jokes in the original film or the little wry observations in the film, then it's it's kind of cringy. Yeah. I call it Mad Magazine Syndrome. I don't call it that. I've never used that term in my life. I'm saying it now. F***ing hell, Ben. Mad Magazine would do these, like, movie parodies. And oftentimes they would, in, like, comic book form, and oftentimes they would parody movies that were genuinely good and very funny, but they would parody in them in this way that was utterly unfunny. Mm. It would just be all, like, puns and like criticisms of like the comedy value of the film but the films were usually quite good i guess also when something kind of starts to take itself more seriously like a james bond film Mm -hmm. maybe it loses a bit of that quality there are a lot of detractors but i think that the idea that is sort of being made for this new ghostbusters film is probably a better logical idea than what always sounded like a bad idea for a third film that would be sort of canonically in line with Ghostbusters 1 and 2, which was always going to be a lot more serious and not played for laughs. That was always the thing that would keep coming up again and again was that, you know, uh, okay, we had some fun, but now it's time to make a serious Ghostbusters film. (laughs) And it's like, well, I don't think you get what Ghostbusters is about, guy who created it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that later Earthworm Jim Games... I, I don't really have any memory of because I think I just kind of checked him out once and then didn't return to him because you could just tell something was missing. Mm. But then when you look at something like The Neverhood or his latest project, which is called Army Krog, that very distinct Doug Tadapel stamp is is there. Uh, and for people who, who, know, who know and remember The Neverhood game, I think it was actually a series of maybe two or three, but I think the first one is sort of considered like the classic. For people who remember them, this is very much in a similar vein. It's it's obviously, you know, Neverhood is a licensed franchise, so they can't make a new Neverhood game. Uh, I think it's owned by Sony, maybe. Um, but they can certainly make a game that's spiritually in the same vein. as. Uh, and I actually feel like it has a, even a bit of an Earthworm Jim vibe, even though it's stop motion like the Neverhood, and it's point and click like the Neverhood. There's something about the main character that, that feels kind of Earthworm Jimmy, the sidekick character which is a sort of blind dog wonderful claymation design that feels kind of like you know i mean it's it's it all feels like it's you know from the mind of doug to naple he's also written a whole bunch of graphic novels that are really interesting most recent ones are for young adults um but sort of preceding those there are quite a few like for i guess sort of general audiences uh rat fist recently i uh, i enjoyed a great deal creature tech for people who like their graphic novels to have really, really good sound artwork. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would definitely uh, advise looking into his bibliography. But onward with the interview. Let's uh, let's hear from Doug Tenaple about his work on Armacrog and some of the other stuff he's up to. The first thing that I imagine quite a few people will be familiar with as far as your work goes would be um, probably Earthworm Jim, I guess. Have you done other, have you done like comic stuff before that or animation projects? Yeah. Yeah. So my probably my first comics and animation, you know, I was doing probably strips and little mini comics that I would photocopy for my friends, probably around fourth grade is around when I started. And so that's my experiment in mass media. You know, if that's what you want to call it is art for others. Mm -hmm. I always would show off my drawings to my classmates because it was a way that I could connect with them. And I didn't find other ways very easy to connect with them, but it was always easy to connect through the arts. So I started doing my own 8mm puppet animated movies in fourth grade. And they were really bad, like unwatchable stuff. You just couldn't even tell what was going on on screen. But I liked doing it. 
so I would, I felt because I was so fascinated with mass media, right? Because I'm here, I am watching TV shows, reading comic books, looking at animation, and I always wanted to just do it. And later in high school, when I started playing video games, that same thing occurred. You know, when I saw video games, I want to do that. I never thought I could do it or I'd be allowed to do it. And so it was, that was when I started trying for jobs was when I found out people were getting paid, then obviously I would try to get paid to animate. If I remember right, because I, I, my sort of, I guess, generation was that kind of 16-bit era, I guess, of video games. And as far as I can tell... When that game came out, there really hadn't been anything quite like it in terms of yeah. the, I don't know, just the strength, I guess, of the animation. Yeah. I think I saw like a sort of small documentary on the process. Was it actually come out as an animation production, like animated on light boxes and stuff like that? We did, yeah. We yeah. had our light tables. And that was because where we came from, you know, Virgin Entertainment was dumping a lot of their light tables because they yeah. saw what was coming, that they were going to get out of that 2D thing. And we scooped them all up. And we all dreamed of being 2D animators. It's, it's really weird, our relationship to games is, we are games fans, mm. but we're really animation fans. Mm. And, and games just happen to be the place that let us do more animation. Because mm. if you worked on a feature, you know, you work on one shot maybe, or if you work on a TV show, you have limited control. But video games, it was like they were inviting us to do anything we wanted and as much of it as we wanted. So as an animator, it was very appealing to us to get to do that. And the same with puppet animation and clay animation. No one would let us do that in features. Mm. You know, just there were, there were tiny pockets of people, frankly, who were much better than us doing Nightmare Before Christmas and stuff like that. We were just kind of hobbyists. You know, who's going to let us do that? Well, Games was mm. thrilled to have us come in and do puppet animation. So the 2D animation was kind of, I don't even know if other people, maybe Animaniacs and stuff was were doing some Warner Brothers slash Tex Avery type stuff. But the crazy stuff that we were doing, video games never said no. You know, it's new Earthworm Gem. And that that was really, to me, just an open door because I was the right place at the right time. Hmm. So I wasn't messing with studios so much. I was in games at the time. And the technology just turned the corner. And uh, the guys at Shiny... Uh, particularly Mike Dietz, who was over at Virgin working with Dave Perry at the time, Mike Dietz and Ed Schofield, were developing kind of how to really capture the drawing and that line weight and hold it for the sprite and then chop it up and re-carve uh, it up into like a cube that was easily stored in the cartridge to give us the maximum amount of frames. So it was kind of a, I was just at the right place and at some point, Animation, even in games, probably moved on to where I, I'm not, I wouldn't be good enough to do it anymore. Mm. So it's kind of neat to be at that place where it was just crude enough and okay to kind of get, like I can do, say, a 12-frame walk cycle or I can do a character punching, you know, in three or four frames. Mm. I really wouldn't be the best guy if they were doing full, you know, 24 frames per second animation. Then they, it really does qualify to go out and hire a professional animator to go do that. Mm. What's weird about the puppet animation, like that we're doing in Neverhood, was, you know, it was clunky and we were doing about as good as we could. And, and Mike Dietz was always kind of the spearhead of the great animation among us. And, mm. and I learned a lot from Ed Schofield, too. We learned from each other. But he was really kind of the best animator of us by a mile, a very serious animator, Mike Dietz. By the time we got to Armacrog, 
And I, I've done only one shot in Armacrog, and I think Mike and Ed are inviting me back next week to do another shot. Uh-huh. But uh, I mean, a, a bunch of the sh- animation was given to us for free by guys who worked on Box Trolls and the screen novelty guys that just, you see their work all over high-end professional stuff. And I'm like, I don't want to do any animation. Let them do it. (laughs) I I want to see them do their magic. And we got some of the greatest animators in the world just for free working on Armacrog because they loved it. And I don't think that would have happened with paper animation either. I think it's the puppet animation being kind of a hobbyist, craftsman, passion Hmm. thing that they all got into it. So primarily when this idea came about, did Mike and Ed come to you with a story idea or was it your idea originally or? Is this Armacrog? Yeah. Okay. In all of them, I create the stuff. Okay. But in the case of Armacrog, like I was working on Armacrog for 15 years. It wasn't going to be a game. It was going to be either a comic book or a movie or something weird. Mm. And it didn't even have Tommy not as the lead character. It was a bunch of weird looking characters, more like Beep Beep, like a whole civilization of blind birds and animals and things. You see some of those show up in Neverhood, too. So it's kind of been my style to work with those shapes. Mm. You know, when I draw them, they look like they're made of clay. I never thought they'd have to be made of clay. In the execution, they could have been drawings. But Mike and Ed and I, for about two years, there was very little work. And I was just kind of looking at, what am I going to do? And, I, and you know, I sell my comic movie deals into Hollywood. Sometimes they bring down Big Bank, and sometimes they bring down very little. And so that's usually my best bet to like do what I love doing and monetize it every couple of years. And it pays for a couple of years mm. of stuff all in one go. And it takes all that time. It's a big giant risk because it probably would look to the story and go, eh, we don't want this. It's just dead on the yeah. spot. It's not like they suddenly get interested in it again a couple of years later. So I was kind of getting hungry. And then Mike and Ed were ready to close the doors on pencil tests. And, and that was kind of a giant experiment for them, too, because they were working in these video game companies like Heavy Iron, working all the Pixar games and doing amazing work. But they just wanted to be their own boss. So they decided to see, we can do the same work and just kind of be contractors. Hmm. And that's what pencil test was. It was a two-man contracting business that did animation for commercials and for video games. But they were running thin. I had gotten my master's at Fullerton State for illustration in 2012, and I assumed I'd be teaching. And I ended up getting actually a a teaching gig part-time at Houston Baptist University where they'd fly me out to Houston to teach. It was a a little something, and I could teach video games, I could teach animation and screenwriting. And then Mike and Ed and I just had an informal conversation so I was thinking about doing a Kickstarter because I just done a Kickstarter for my sketchbook and it was really successful. Mm. I asked for twenty-two grand and I got hundred and fifteen grand to take like a compilation of all my sketchbooks and do one hardbound, leather-bound version of my very best work for my sketchbooks, including my Earthroom Gym sketchbooks and Neverhood sketchbooks. Were all kind of incorporated in there. I did a tiny print run of like twelve hundred or thirteen hundred copies. If I may say, that's. Um... I, I went in on that, and it's easily the most satisfying thing I've ever gotten out of Kickstarter. It's so gorgeous the way it came out. Thank you, and thanks for your donation, too. I really appreciate it, because I feel like that's probably the strongest thing I've ever made in my life, and the most satisfying, because it was like, it bugged me that people only saw Earthworm Jim of my work, and I go, I've just made hundreds of things mm. that will never see the screen, and I I, I think the best format to see them is kind of just as a sketch. It doesn't have to get any farther than that, a little explanation, a sketch. 
And so they were impressed with that. And I went to them and said, guys, what if we did an animated feature? And I'd written a story uh, of, a, of a book that I'm, I'm working on called Sterling about a unicorn. And I sent the character designs to them. And we started, they started looking at the numbers of what features got and just said, it's not on there on Kickstarter. Like we'd need millions and you can't raise millions on an unknown comic book. Hmm. And what we're known for is video games. So it's probably kind of a week or two of plunking around with the movie idea. And Mike and Ed kept getting more and more kind of, I don't know if this is going to work. And I think it was Mike who came up with the idea going, look, we got nothing to lose. We have the most notoriety in Earthworm Jim and Neverhood. We still get just tons of fan mail every week, all of us do, from around the world on those games. And Mike said, why don't we do a game? And I, I, my mouth dropped open. I just kind of said, why didn't I think of that before? <laughs> Mike. Because it made perfect sense as soon as he said it. And we all kind of said at the same time, like, puppet animation? We're like, puppet animation. <laughs> like, yeah. The other thing is we've gotten so much better, especially Mike and Ed, at puppet animation. I mean, at Neverhood, we were just kind of figuring it out. Now, what you'll see is amazing feature quality, crazy, crazy beyond what we ever did before. Mm. It just it doesn't even compare. So the opportunity was sitting there. They thought it was a good idea. And then Mike just said, Doug, come up with anything you want. Come up with something. And so my mind instantly went to Armacrog. <laughs> and I said the name for the first time to Mike. Then. I'm sure they'd heard me talk about it before over the last 15 years. But I said, I think it's going to be Armacrog. I didn't even know what it was about. I just said, I think it's going to be that. And Mike goes, write up a write up a idea, you know, come up with your plot, come up with your characters. And I started drawing for the first time in a sketchbook, Tommy Knot and Beak Beak and all the, the what what Armor Krog is. It's a big mystery and a big kind of backstory, it has a real deep mythology to it. Mm-hmm. Really funky, because I just thought no one was there to tell us no. So it's kind of our opportunity to show games what creativity looks like. And I don't mean to be a pig about that, but I think games should be a lot farther along than it is, and certainly at least on independent games. I mean, why not? So I presented a few of the characters and the main ideas and asked Mike and Ed what they thought of the palettes, and we went back and forth on, to me, the biggest controversy was that Tommy Knot's eyes are solid black spheres. Mm. We hadn't seen that on any other character before. Because we, you know, usually I would do the carved eyes in, like, Clayman. And before that, Earthroom Jim, the big bulging Tex Avery eye. And I said, I don't know if we can pull this off. I did a couple of drawings for Mike saying, this is what you, how you can bulge the clay to make him look like he's looking right and looking left and surprised and eyes closed and stuff. And uh, he said, let's give it a try. So then I wrote the, uh, the intro movie that you see for that Kickstarter. It was originally a little bit longer, but we cut it down to that. Uh, intro movie. I said, we just got to put up a great looking movie to show them the quality that we're aiming for. And they said, we're taking on the entire Kickstarter thing. We don't want you to touch it. And I said, good, because I don't want to touch it after the after the sketchbook thing. I was just kind of done with that. I just wanted to design the game. We were loosely trying to fit it within like the Neverhood game mechanic of point and click adventure, mostly because that was the easiest thing to do that would show off our animation. So we shot that movie, that intro movie, 
over a period of about a month, but I, I flew out from Colorado Springs for about two weeks to pencil test and built the sets and worked on the ideas and all that. And we shot it and it just looked crazy. Oh, and I, I was already friends with uh, Rob Paulson and uh, Mike Nelson. So I knew I had two great voices, although Mike Nelson had never done that kind of cartoon character work before. I said, Mike, I just kind of want, you know, to me, he's like a very heroic type as a friend. He's very stoic and interesting sounding. I've never done a character like that before. You know, and there's always that kind of nagging thing in all of our guts of how much are we just going to copy Neverhood? Mm. And I really kept veering away from that, just saying I really want to create something new. Like, I made Neverhood, and that's all my style, so I know it that the style is going to be similar to it, but I just don't want to get caught copying ourselves. So even if you use the same people, we have Terry Taylor doing music and all that, my notes just it would be easier to say, just copy Neverhood and just do a knockoff. And that mm. just is not in my vocabulary, if you know where I come from. That's just not how I do it. And so we took off on the Kickstarter, right? Finished that movie. And that was like the last dollar we had. The puppets are very expensive to mold and cast. And, and uh, we had to do all the, you know, the records and stuff out of all their houses. You know, uh, Paul and, and Paulson and Mike you know, recorded out of their house mm. and, uh, and we finished that movie and said, okay, here it goes. So did you write the, the actual sort of dialogue for the characters yeah. and the whole story? Yeah. So how do you find like writing a, because I assume that with like the kind of point and click structure, there are all sorts of kind of alternate outcomes and things like that. Or, I mean, how do you kind of approach the sort of story structure compared to say how you'd approach like a graphic novel? Or... The story has to be way more editable and, you know, Mike and Ed do a lot of editing and a lot of writing on their own because it's not, they don't need to call me to say this line's not working out. We changed the gameplay, so we need this line instead. They'll just write that line up and go for it. So it, it has to be more open-ended. So everything that I give them, including the game design document that I initially did, was after the campaign started going, I'm going, holy cow. You know, I had a light design before. Now I really got to design this game. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so after the money came in was when I really designed the game. And I invited two friends over, one from Oklahoma, one from Utah. And they came over to my house for three days. And we basically would just kind of spitball ideas. And we built most of the game in cardboard on my living room table. Mm -hmm. So all those buildings that you see had cardboard representations and we were filming it all kind of to get the camera down in the building. So it would just be a real basic box would represent room B. Mm -hmm. In the Neverhood, all the rooms are fixed. In this game, you can move some of the rooms around okay. to change the way the puzzles even connect so that it's like a puzzle in a puzzle. Mm -hmm. Loosely, you know, we ended up cutting a lot of those features out just for time, but that's what I was trying to pull off on my mm -hmm. living room table. You know, and, and I wanted the, the rooms to feel real visual and big, so they needed to kind of work and clunk and move, you know, on the spot. So a lot of the movements made it in the game. Probably about 95% of what we designed was cut. Hmm. And other stuff that we designed that was a little easier to pull off went in. Excellent. And we always over-design our game. We, on Neverhood, we designed at least another third to two-thirds of a game that we cut out. So once the game structure's there in the design... I did like watercolors of each room to kind of show what the design might be and how it corresponds to the outside. Um, 
puzzle. There's a lot of inside, outside stuff. Mostly inside, but just for puppet animation to control the rooms. And then, uh, and then the last part was really polishing up the story. Because I, I, you kind of, with the game, have a beginning, middle, and end, and you know what's going on. There's a giant epic backstory to Armor Krog that I wrote in like 21 chapters inside. So it's going to be like the Hall of Records. It's all in there. And there's parts of the story where you just play the game and it won't quite make sense what the characters are saying or doing, but you read all their motivation and everything that they're doing and why it's there in the story. Mm -hmm. So if you want to explore more, there's just a ton of information in there for you to pull out. And if you just want to play the game, you can just play the game. <laughs> well, the other hard thing was, you know, in 2012, when I became a teacher, I also got a job. DreamWorks offered me a job as a showrunner for VeggieTales in the house. Mm. I ended up getting hired on the biggest job of my life. It's a three-year gig. We're doing 11 minutes a week for three years. Mm. And so suddenly I got this giant full-time job, a part-time job as a professor, and I still had a, and I had signed a three-book deal with Scholastic to do a graphic novel a year called Newt's. So I just now finished up my second of those graphic novels. So I'm, I had to be very careful with my time. The good news was... I didn't have to get paid at all on Armor Krog, so not a dime. I've only put my money into it. And that was really important to allow Mike and Ed to hire some important contractors that we needed, pay for music and things like that. It, my jobs kept my creativity kind of on the screen, but took my burden on the project off, mm -hmm. which is ideal. Yeah, the uh, the Veggie Tales. Um... Is that it's like a remake, isn't it, of like a show from? Yeah, yeah we did a redesign, and and uh, Rob Paulson does a voice for me on that. And originally, my story editor, my lead writer, was Mike Nelson. I have Ethan Nicole writing for me, who did Axe Cop. I mean, I've got a bunch of writer friends on that. Terry Taylor's doing the music, so you kind of see my similar band of people that I've worked with. Mm -hmm. Including Mike and Ed, I'd put them on it if they weren't working already. But I mean, I know my go-to guys who do great work mm. when it's time to buff out the team. It's good to know sort of who to trust and who to rely on. Yeah, they're, because they're personal friends, so I can trust them on that level. And they're also like the best in the business, so I can trust them even more on that level. So between the two, I'm going to come out with some good stuff. Mm. Television production, had you done like series work before? Uh, like a... I have actually. My first job was in '91. I was an animator on Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, the animated oh, series. Wow. So that's really where I learned how to read an exposure sheet, how to read storyboards, and you know, kind of my introduction to animation. I was terrible, but I was learning kind of the language. And it was right after that that I got into video games and met Mike Deeds. Mm -hmm. And then with Earthworm Jim, I because it was a successful TV series, I became an exec producer on the TV series, so I got to be in management of that show. And then I had created a show with the main writer on Earthroom Gyms, a guy named Doug Langdale. And he and I created a show called Project Geeker in 98 that uh, CBS picked up. It went on for, I think, a season and a half or two. And then I did, based on my graphic novel, Gear, that came out in the late 90s, uh, Nickelodeon loved the characters and asked if I wanted to do a TV series. So I was the creator of the show Cat Scratch, which came out in 2005, I think, and it had two seasons. Mm. So that's where I really started learning. And my showrunner was Peter Hastings, who's one of the greatest showrunners I've ever worked with. 
I kind of learned everything from him. He did. He's working on Ninja Turtles, and he's done his show runs all over Hollywood. He did Animaniacs, so he'd work with Rob Paulson. And I've been pitching shows to into TV for 15 years, and most of them have not succeeded, or the pilot was never even made, or whatever. But I still had never actually run my own show, and this was the first opportunity. DreamWorks liked my pitch. They asked me to come in and pitch VeggieTales, and I, just, I didn't think they'd even go for it. So I came up with this idea, redesigned the kind of upbeat the characters, put them in a world, and, and kind of upscale the cast and the writing with more still Christians, but just broader Warner Brothers stuff. So if you look at the mm -hmm. show, and it's being animated by Bardell in Canada, it's probably the best 2D, I mean the best 3D cartoon animation I've ever seen. I'll stand by that all day. You will not find better squash and stretch and Tex Avery type stuff than what we're doing. It just happened to be on VeggieTales. It's so nice that we're now in a place where we can do that with CG for series production. Because CG, it crawled out of such a dark hole when it's, they started using it for TV shows. Yeah, um, it's, it was so awful and clunky. Mm. that, And that's what's weird is people don't go into CG to make it look like Tex Avery. They go into it to make it look real or expensive or whatever. And so there really wasn't much competition of pose to pose. In fact, I'd probably say Madagascar is probably the best pose to pose animation I've seen where someone ever even attempted it. DreamWorks, they do it on some movies and on some they don't. But th these guys are doing crazy stuff. I mean, Bardell, they're, they're showing off now. Mm. It's, it is amazing what they're doing. And I love it. So we're... I feel real proud of that, but I was never a showrunner before, so I'm basically a mid-level manager out here, and they moved me out, DreamWorks slash Netflix moved me out to Tennessee, mm -hmm. and so here I am in Tennessee now, after living in Colorado Springs for nine months, I'm here on at least a three-year contract to do this show. I don't draw, I, I'll draw some character designs just to tell them what I'm looking for, you know, but really I don't storyboard, I don't draw, I do a lot of writing. And I'm just a manager. <laughs> Your relationship with Terry yeah. and the kind of understanding, I suppose. I mean, do you get to a point when you work with someone a certain amount of times where you kind of have your own sort of ability to directly communicate, okay, what exactly this kind of music for this kind of thing? Or yeah. And with all my creative guys, be it a writer or like, the, like Ed and Mike as animators and, and game designers, you know, or my voice talent. I come from the art form as an artist and not as an executive. And this is probably where I part ways with almost every executive I've met in Hollywood who hasn't worked in the arts is I, I think you get the best artwork from artists by pushing the responsibility on them to entertain and figure it out. I'll, I'll tell them what the problem is, like I don't like this, but I will not give them the solution. And there's a lot of executives that go, never give a note without giving a suggestion. It's like, I do not give the suggestion. So I just give the note. Because then I'm trying to get into the head of a writer, right? And tell mm -hmm. my, I can write fine. But I want my writers to stand up and be the kind of writer that is good at solving his own problems. And so my musicians are the same way. It's like, I'll tell them, you know, this lyric isn't working for me or this song isn't, it's too slow or whatever. And so on Armacrog, I just gave Terry kind of a whole bunch of music that I knew he liked, but I knew I loved also. Because when I, when I did Neverhood, I introduced him to like 
right? She showed him the Leon Redbone and kind of these blues, squirrel nut zippers and things. And Terry does not normally write that stuff. Hmm. And so it shook him into this direction where it's not that I've forced him to do it or anything. It's he found it. He found his own way. And so on Armor Krog, I gave him a bunch of the uh, Dave Bowie uh, space music, just a lot of Bowie, hmm. early flaming lips. It's much more kind of Zeppelin-influenced in the big drums, big thunderous drums, and they'll pull out a, a little weird, kind of weird uh, minor notes that Terry already works in a lot on his own music. And that's because he's a huge uh, Brian Wilson fan from the Beach Boys who brought in the theremin and things like that. And so Terry's always, he's a brilliant musician who can write anything. And he came back with bizarre, layered themes that... You know, it wasn't what I expected. And I just said, yeah, yeah, that, that is Armour Crow. Yeah, that's it. You got it. And, and the fans, of course, many of them were just going, look, just go. It doesn't sound like the Neverhood soundtrack, so I don't like it. And I can't believe your lead character is talking and Clayman never talked. And uh, they, they point out all the differences. <laughs> it, it just means nothing to us because that's not what we're doing. I'm not mm. interested in... And, and it's illegal. I mean, I don't have the rights to Neverhood, so I'm not going to try to just do a knockoff and mm. call it Cleverhood and have it all be Clay and the exact same characters in different colors. It's just that it's unethical and it's dumb. It's such a better impulse, like you say, to do something that's original and is its own thing. But yeah, it's funny that doing that and putting the sort of effort into making this whole new project and then you yeah. get the people going, ah, but it's not like this. You know? Yeah, and I, I, I get their concern because they... You know, they were raised on Neverhood. They were raised on Earthworm Jim. Mm. And by the way, I got the same thing when we made Neverhood instead of another Earthworm Jim knockoff. We mm. made Neverhood, which was completely different. Different genre, different everything. And a whole lot of people just didn't show up because they just wanted us to make them feel like they did when they were five playing Earthworm Jim. And we didn't do that. Mm. So I get what they want, that sentimental value. But there's a whole generation of people who were raised on Neverhood who would never have experienced that if we didn't break, break off from Earthworm Jim. Mm. And likewise, there'll be a generation raised on Armacrog, and they don't give a rat's butt about Earthworm Jim or Neverhood. But this will be their experience growing up, playing with their family and going, I wish you'd do another Armacrog, and guess what's going to happen next time? Mm. <laughs> I'm going to let you down. <laughs> I don't want to lose them. I'm not trying to be clever or anything. I just think... A new game with a blank slate is an opportunity to really come up with something hopefully better. And even on Earthworm Jim 2, it wasn't as good as Earthworm Jim 1 because we were innovating so much and we needed more restraint or something. And so if we ever do a sequel to Armacrog, I'll probably stick a lot closer to the original. But let's see how this game turns out first <laughs> before we decide what happens. So yeah, there was there was that second Earthworm Jim, and then did it then just sort of get taken, yeah, into someone else's hands and yeah. By then, I had moved on to do Neverhood. I had left right. just before Earthworm Jim Two was finished, and started the Neverhood, and drained shiny of uh, Mike Dietz was my main animator. Ed Schofield came over. Eric Chacon, that's the entire animation department came. Uh, Mark Lorenzen was a background guy who came over to do backgrounds. And so we got Steve Crow, who was the backgrounder, who did New Junk City. You know, just a whole lot of them came over with us. Mm. And so it was a third party that wanted to do the Jim 3D one. 
And I looked at the game design doc and I said, this is not Earthworm Jim. It's funny and it's clever and it's neat, but this is not Jim. And I was young and pretty inflexible too, you know, mm. thought it was all about me at the time. But I was still right. But <laughs> it, it may not have been about me, but that really was a crappy game. And, and I know how hard it is even to make a crappy game. I'm sure that team just killed themselves to make that you know, as good as they can. I was tired of asking permission to work on my own characters. And that's why I, I won't beg too hard from Interplay to get to work on Jim. And I'm not going to go to EA and beg for Neverhood. I've a, I asked them and I talk to their legal department every couple of years and go, hey, let us release the Neverhood. Let's do a thing. And they always come up with some idea of their own. Just going, we have a third party. We want to give it to them. And he's got this great idea for a big 3D debris, just a tracing of the original game. And I just go, that, no, that's not going to happen. And so it doesn't happen. Yeah, and that's sort of it. Like when they take a, an old game and then kind of re-release it for a different console, because I know there were various Earthworm Jims that came out that were sort of based on the original one. Yeah. At that point, do they just have a completely different people just taking like the sprites and rebuilding it? Yeah, it's mm. no the original team is working on it. And so and so much so much of Earthworm Jim was the original team's um, fingerprint. Mm. And at one time I had a ton of the original team ready to go on a new Kickstarter for Earthworm Jim 4. Mm. I mean, they were ready, but one of the main things I I said was we want total con creative control. Mm. And that's just something that companies just don't give up. No. You know, it's very dangerous, but I think we earned that right, I, I would say. We're good for it. Certainly with the sort of track record of doing it out of the gate, and it's, I think it's just something across the board, like as soon as something is done really with ingenuity the first time, and then it becomes this property that can be milked or whatever, yeah. then the whole like notion of, okay, well, why don't we do that same sort of approach again? Nah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, my, that's kind of the thing is that from a publisher standpoint, they kind of say, Ah, you know, what's the creator and what's the team? You know, we slot in some other animators because we own the property and the property is what's valuable to us. Mm -hmm. And then from a creator standpoint, it's like, well, who is the publisher? Who cares? You know, just uh, anyone can fund this thing. I have the team and I know the people to pull it off, what it really takes. And that undermines their value mm -hmm. as the rights owner. So no one wants to come into a legal, legal meeting already on the wrong end of the table mm. and that's kind of the problem with owning characters and characters that really need the you know creators to work on it i would love to see a great team pull off earthworm gym i mm. think the, like probably the only team in the world that could do it are probably the raymond guys raymond legend guys could probably pull it mm. off it'd still be a little french but it would be a great game and it would animate well and it would be neat yeah, yeah, they're, they're the only ones I can sort of think of that are still kind of doing what you guys sort of started in a way. Yeah, yeah maybe the Alien Hominid guys too. You know, they could probably do it. The Castle Crashers guys could probably do it too. But uh, in the meanwhile, I mean, it's great to be moving in a forward direction as well and carrying on with new things Just, and new ideas. So much, and... It was so easy to create Armacrog mm. on paper. I mean, come up with the IP and have a great character. It was good to go it's so much more fun and just that's our number one fan comment i get probably an email a week for the last you know 20 years just going Doug, okay i got this great idea are you ready a new earthworm gym game <laughs> so i'm like dude <laughs> i know i know a neverhood sequel it'd be great right a neverhood sequel 
Here's my idea. One guy even said, like, I've copyrighted the idea, and I'll let I, I, I might cut you in on it. Wait a minute. You, you copyrighted what? The idea for a sequel to Never Hangs? Yeah, yeah, I'll let you in on it. Went, Dude. That's a uh, strange grasp of copyright law. <laughs> yeah, you go do that. Probably not the best uh, bedfellows as far as a <laughs> future business partnership there. Uh, they self-select themselves pretty quickly. <laughs> so that was Doug to Naple. On Army Krog, the game is now out on uh, multiple platforms. It's out for Mac and Windows and Linux, for you Linux users. And I believe there is a planned release for the Wii U down the line. I'm not entirely sure if they have a release date secured for that, but they're working very hard on... I think that's their sort of top priority at the moment, Uh, Mike and Ed, the guys that Doug was just talking about. I've been playing the game over the weekend, and it really is a lot of fun. It's. Um, have you seen the sort of footage of it? I've seen. I've seen clips. Of it. I've seen a few bits and pieces. It does look like you know back to that. You know the same sort of joy that you used to get as a kid playing uh, the sort of earthworm gyms and things like that. As he was sort of talking about how his animation skill is so kind of limited in the sense to really really short actions like that are perfect for sprite animation. As such, they're just really wonderful to kind of study. And I, what I feel playing this game is the same thing I felt playing. Earthworm Jim on the snares was just sort of looking at how the fluidity of the run cycle, the secondary movement of like the gun recoil, things like that. This really does have that feel, but in stop motion, and it's a perfect thing to just study, like the walk cycles and like the lovely way the kind of um, Beak Beak, the companion dog, will follow you wherever you go or when you take control of that character. The walk cycle they have for that is this very kind of sort of Pepe Le Pew-esque kind of like bouncing thing is wonderful it's really lovely to look at and all the little sort of extra characters that show up uh there are these kind of ants who kind of have sort of features of historical figures and you'll like this they they all have like uh presidential pun names so it's uh abraham link ant or or abraham lincoln i forget which but you know they'll help you along your way and give you clues and things like that and the designs of those puppets are wonderful and uh yeah it's just, i i find that because i'm not really as much a gamer as I once was, I've really, it's, it's, I'll dip into like maybe two or three games a year. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I'm still like bowled over by portal. <laughs> that was like <laughs> 10 years ago or something by now. But you know, I do find that I, once I got into the logic of the game, it was a lot of fun to solve the puzzles. Mm. It does definitely even not going into it from the kind of gaming angle, more as a sort of animation appreciative angle. I ended up really enjoying myself and it was a lot of fun. Sold. I'm going to go out and buy myself a Wii U when it comes out then. So yes, Armicrog is out at armicrog.com. That's A-R-M-I-K-R-O-G. More information there. And it's available via Steam for the time being. Keep your eyes skinned for the console version soon. There you go. Lovely stuff. Elsewise, in the world of animation, the Manchester Animation Festival is ever encroaching. It's uh, going to be November before we know it. It's happening on the 17th, 18th and 19th of November and we've announced the first of our festival programme. And so we've got some guest speakers giving uh, masterclasses among them. Tom Moore, uh, Secret of the Kells and uh, Song of the Sea, uh, Oscar-nominated uh, co-director and uh, uh, a previous podcast guest. Mm-hmm. Bloody nice chap as well, I dare say. Absolutely. We also have uh, Admin Animation's uh, Will Beecher, He'll be talking about bringing Sean the Sheep 
to the screen is also working on the uh, the new Nick Park film, Early Man. So um, I'll probably uh, try waterboarding him live on stage to get some information about that <laughs> film out. <laughs> uh, and the godfather of UK comedy animation, Tim Sell, will be coming to talk about uh, his career, which includes uh, 2D TV, I'm Not an Animal, uh, numerous short films that he's helped along the way, and uh, Mr. Bean, the animated series, which has recently uh, made its triumphant return back to the uh, small screen. Um, we'll also be presenting the co-founder of Cosgrove Hall and the man who really started animation in the northwest of England with his partner Mark Hall. Uh, Brian Cosgrove, he will be presented with the first uh, Manchester Animation Festival Fellowship Award. As well as the uh, masterclasses at the festival, we've also got panels. One called How to Make Friends and Animate People, The Art of Crowdfunding. So you can probably guess what that's about, Ben. Yeah, I think I can crack that code. More or less. Excellent. So the producer of Simon's Cat, Emma Birch, Morph director Merlin Crossingham, and the Tall Tales director John Turner will be coming to have a close look at uh, crowdfunding. Also, we're going to be joined by the writing, production and directing team behind the new Danger Mouse series. So we've got Rob Cullen, the director of Danger Mouse, Ben Ward, the head writer of Danger Mouse, and Andrew Burrell, uh, one of the producers of uh, Danger Mouse and script editor. Um, ben and Rob were on the last podcast. I think quite a few of these people have been on the podcast before. Now that I now that I think about it, it's like a squiggly podcast reunion. <laughs> it's like if you if you're a fan of this podcast and you want to see the live show, head down to Math this year. It is it is a list of people Steve has bugged in the past. There's also going to be a reflection on Manchester's animation legacy. We're talking to uh, Brian Cosgrove and we're talking about Danger Mouse, which is obviously a product of Manchester. Uh, we'll also be talking to um, about the booming Manchester animation industry uh, from Factory, uh, who you know from Strange Hill High and the remake of The Clangers, uh, Flix Facilities, who do Old Jack's Boat, amongst other things. They also uh, work in collaboration with Factory and the other guests, which are McKinnon Saunders, uh, who uh, make uh, puppets and films and 2D and 3D and the whole lot. Um, and these are three companies that are really thriving in Manchester and really producing hundreds and hundreds of jobs in the area. And so it'd be nice to uh, for the, to see them take to the stage and, and explain why Manchester's doing so well and, and how they got to where they are. And that's going to be a, a panel called Making It in Manchester. So already it's a, for a small event in the sort of wake of something like Bradford, it's already very, very densely packed there's a, a whole shitload of stuff to go see um and there's more are coming keep your eyes open um obviously we're quite sort of well plugged into the whole event so we'll be keeping people abreast of what's going to be happening as well but uh, yes and of course all of this and the films yeah the films in competition have already been revealed and the films the panorama films as well which um, are not in competition but they're eligible for the audience award the manchester animation festival has recently announced that McKinnon Saunders have made the awards. Um, have you seen these awards, Ben? Yes, I certainly have. They're pretty sexy. They're beerific. Beerific. Eh? I saw what you did there, Ben. Yeah. You put the word "be" in a in a word there where it didn't fit. <laughs> That's a very good point. <laughs> <laughs> They're bespoke. Bespoke. <laughs> nice. There you go. <laughs> Yeah, uh, although there's going to be three exactly the same. No, actually, they're, they are slightly different because uh, they are put together by hand by the um, sculptor Joe Holman, 
So everyone's slightly different. You know, the bees looking in a different direction. Their arms and legs aren't the same. This isn't like a, a, a factory produced. These are little, as they were described by Sarah Mullock, as artisan pieces, which mm. I think is a perfect description for um, the work and effort that Joe's put into these. And uh, anyone looking at the awards and salivating, as I'm sure they will be, are certain to agree. Apart from that, we've, we've, got, we've got loads of other stuff. We've got uh, Joanna Quinn's going to be giving a live drawing class. Animation Toolkit are going to be coming to do a, uh, like a, a paper-to-puppet uh, stop-motion armature-making uh, workshop where people will be given a stop-motion armature and uh, talk through making one. We've got a screening, a rare UK preview of The Prophet. And uh, Tom Moore, our guest at the festival, will be uh, introducing one of the screenings. He produced uh, the segment on love. Hmm. So uh, that's going to be an interesting one as well. Yeah, we've got, we've got loads of stuff. I think people are just going to have to go to the website, really, and, 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 and take a peek. That's uh, manchesteranimationfestival.co.uk. Also, you can follow uh, the Manchester Animation Festival on Twitter, at MCR Animation. Or you can go on Facebook, facebook.com slash Manchester Animation Festival. So yeah, that's that's on the 17th, 18th and 19th of November. So very soon, Ben, very soon. We're all working hard to uh, put the whole thing together. Yeah, well, it's been a, a really sort of top-notch job by the team. I think that, you know, the work you've done with Deb. Also, of course, Bill and uh, Jen as the co-producers of the festival. Jen, I know, has been absolutely... Uh, slaving away over the selection side of things and just getting the programs all organized and from my position having done a very small handful of little one-off events i know it is a massive pain in the uh tuckus just to get you know a couple of those things put together and sorted so a whole festival's worth on top of all the work she of course is the uh the sort of head honcho of this is not a cartoon the associated squiggly screenings no she's absolutely uh stalwart in her role there yeah i can't wait to uh to be there in person. Excellent. And hopefully some of the squiggly listeners will be turning up as well. I'm sure there's something in there for everyone. Mm. And there will be more to come. So uh, tune into the next squiggly podcast. We should have some uh, additional uh, events and announcements and stuff to uh, throw onto an already pretty big pile. So thanks once more to this episode's guest, Doug Tenapel. You can visit him online at tenapel.com and on Twitter at tenapel. That's with two N's. Armacrog is available via the online gaming platform Steam. Check it out at store.steampowered.com. And the official website is armycrog.com. A-R-M-I-K-R-O-G. You can follow me on Twitter at Ben L. Mitchell. My site is ben-mitchell.co.uk. Steve's on Twitter at Mr. Underscore S underscore Henderson. And Squiggly, of course, can be followed at Squiggly. Also on Facebook.com slash Squiggly Magazine. And the main site is squiggly.com. There's some great stuff to check out since the last episode. There's a whole bunch of industry news, more from Doug Tenapel, plus interviews with Jack Cunningham of Nexus, Panna Horvath Molnar, co-director of Dipendenza, a wonderful Hungarian film. It's now online in full. You should check it out. The prolific Dutch-Canadian director Paul Driessen reflects on his career, and Ken Duncan talks about adding in new scenes for the recent re-release of The Iron Giant, Plus, we have some final coverage from this year's Encounters Festival, more on the new Danger Mouse series, and the latest in Stephen Cavalier's 100 Greatest Animated Short Series. It's a plethora of animation wonderment, I tells you. And there'll be plenty more between now and the next episode, so until then, keep your eyes on the site, and happy animating. Well done.